Good morning, church. Growing up in a city, I know very little about fishing. And I don't watch the fishing channel on cable. All I know about fish is that I like mine grilled with fries on the side, steamed Teochew style. But there are people I know who fish. They fish for, as a hobby, for pleasure, even for competition. They boast about the monster fish that they caught or the one they got away. Mark tells us about another kind of fisherman though. Simon and Andrew were fishermen by profession and day after day they cast their nets into the sea. It was the same thing, the same sea, the same boat, the same net. And day after day it was the wind, the water and the fish. Day after day it was the same tedium, the sore muscles and the tired bodies. And they grew up watching their father and grandfather fished, and they grew up believing that fishing would be what they would do for the rest of their lives. If you are not casting the nets, then you will be preparing the nets or mending them. That was what James and John were doing. Casting the nets, preparing the nets, mending the nets. Now we know about those days, don't we? We may not fish for a living, but we know something about the mundane and the routine of life. Day in, day out, the same old, same old. Life lived on an autopilot. We cast the nets, we pull the nets, we prepare the nets to make a living, feed our family, pay the bills, raise children, gain the things that we desire, whether it's a house or a car or vacation, to earn a reputation, gain approval, establish careers casting and mending our way through another day, another month, another year, and indeed another decade. You know what, 2020 is the start of a new decade. Then Jesus appears. Simon and Andrew, James and John, weren't looking for him. They were too busy with their nets, but he sees them and he calls them. Jesus has a way of showing up in our lives in unexpected places, in ordinary places of life. He interrupts their lives and calls out to them. And he does the same in your life and in my life. He shows up when we least expect and calls us to follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus, to be called and follow him? What does it mean? Of course, these four gentlemen were not the first to receive such a call. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets of old, they have received the call of God to be his spokesperson. They were called to be his servants, and then through the prophets, God changed the ancient world. And then in the Gospels, we see Jesus now calling his first disciples to follow him, and then change the Roman world. And then throughout history, God has called men and women, the Luthers, the Carries, the Taylors, the Jongsungs, and many others who have heard his call and followed him. And today, Jesus is still calling his disciples to leave the old life and to follow him in a new life. The call of Christ to follow him is what i like us to reflect this morning. And we are here this morning is because we have sensed and yielded to that call. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will send you out to be fishers for people or fishers for men and women. That was the call for Simon and Andrew, James and John. And it is the same call today for every Christian. Why would it be any different? 
Same call. Live the old life. Live a, live a life of sin and follow Jesus and make disciples. There are three observations I'd like to reflect with you this day on our calling. Three reflections. The first is the kind of people and the sort of followers that Jesus calls. He calls the ordinary. Jesus calls the ordinary. Look with me to verses 14 to 16. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now you have a look further down to verse 19. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Who did Jesus call? Fishermen. Where did he call them? By the Sea of Galilee. Galilee was situated in northern Palestine, north, up north. In the middle there you see is Jerusalem and Judea. And this was the place, the Galilee was the place that the Lord spent about 90% of his time doing ministry in the last three years of his life. And the Sea of Galilee is a prominent theater of his public ministry. And Jesus often used the fishing boat as a kind of a floating pulpit. And the Sea of Galilee is about 21 kilometers long and 13 kilometers wide. If you've been to Israel, you realize that the Sea of Galilee is actually quite big. You know, it's not a small little lake. And the water is warm and a home to a thriving fishing community. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, there were about 240 boats that were regularly fishing the sea, which of course made um, the sea or Galilee as the hub of commerce and fishing activity. And this was the place that Jesus met Simon or Simon Peter and Andrew. Now it must be said that this wasn't the first time that the Lord met or the Lord set his eyes on them. In John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus has already encountered them before. And so it is very likely that these two men were converted about say a year earlier or even less. So say about a year after their conversion, they are now called to follow him and to become what we call or think of as apostles. Fishing was their trade and it was hard work. And the fishermen were not afraid of it. They toiled at sea, sometimes at great peril and often in great fatigue. They cast out their nets. It wasn't, they didn't use lines and hooks one at a time. Really large nets and they cast out to the sea to bring in schools of fish at one time. So the first thing that we need to observe is that the kind of people that Jesus calls, ordinary people, and they were hardworking and they were good in their trade. But nevertheless, they were not people who could be judged by any of the typical metrics of social and religious distinction, like education, family background, or social standing. Not at all. Yet, Jesus calls them. Now suppose that you are to pick a team to accomplish your mission and to, and to uh, realize your goal. Who would you pick? Okay, you have a mission are in front of you, and you're going to assemble a team. What kind of people would you put together? You know, every year, multinational companies, they seek to attract the best 
people. They hunt, you know, the best graduates. And they will talk to the graduating class of perhaps some of the top universities in the world. And they won't go to countryside, you know. They go where? To the city, isn't it? To where they can attract the brightest and the best. If Jesus is to put together an A-team, conventional wisdom would suggest that he should actually go down south to Jerusalem and not stay up north in Galilee. What kind of people would you find in Galilee? Because there is a Sea of Galilee, you will find perhaps mainly fishermen. But in Jerusalem down south, he is more likely to recruit the highly qualified and the most religiously qualified, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But yet you see that Jesus repeatedly passes over the reverence and the doctors of the law and he lashes out and criticizes and chastises the religiously qualified. And so the kind of people that Jesus calls were not the smartest nor the coolest kind of guys. Neither were they the most religious or the most moral. Peter, I'm not talking about Pastor Peter, I'm talking about Apostle Peter. The fellow who shoots from the hip often says the wrong things and asks the wrong questions and misses the point. James is impetuous and has a hot temper. And so is his brother John. Together they were known as sons of thunder. They were impulsive. You know, on one occasion, the Samaritan town rejected Jesus and his message and they wanted to call down fire to destroy them. When Jesus calls his disciples, he was not after their credentials. Not that he cannot use them. What he was not was not after their religious zeal. Not that he cannot harness them. But he was after their hearts. And what he was looking for was people who are willing and committed to follow him. Are you willing? Are you committed? That is the issue. You notice the text at least two times in two verses. The text tells us that when Jesus calls them, they left their nets at once, immediately, without hesitation. These four men were fishermen. They were tough. They were hardworking. They are good in what they do. But they are ordinary people. And they were called. Which is instructive for us because the church is so often after better methods. But Jesus is after better men. The church is often so after better resources. But Jesus is after better people. By better, I do not mean that you know, they think themselves highly or others think of them highly. By better, I mean their conviction and their energy and their devotion is singular and unto Jesus. Now, I know that in church we have titles like bishops and reverends and elders and doctors. And in some church, high church traditions, they have their collars and robes and medallions. Now, this is an, an, an acknowledgement of the gravity of their calling and their office. It is not a statement of personal accomplishment. Because all of us are really common folks, you know, set apart by God and do his work. And you ask, can God use a person like me, you know, with my past? And I'll say, not only God can use a person like that, but that's precisely the only kind of person that God will use. Because throughout Scripture, in fact, indeed, in the Gospel of Mark, you will see that human sin and failure and inadequacy are no obstacles to the call of God. God calls imperfect people to do his work. 
But these people are often aware, deeply aware of their own unworthiness. They are often doubting, they are even resistant. But God does not wait for them to shape up. He calls them and then he works on shaping them into faithful servants. Again, let's take Peter. Now, he has the gift of uh, talking big. He opens his mouth and he puts both feet into it and then he wonders why he couldn't walk. He once boasts this. He says, even though all others failed you, I will not. You see, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but you can count on me. And no sooner had he said that he, what, he denied Jesus three times. Three times, is that the end for him? You know, sometimes we say we make a mistake once, okay, we make some mistakes, okay, twice. But three times, three strikes, and then you are out. After denying him three times, is Peter out? Was he struck off? No. Most amazingly, Jesus made him the head of the church. God is a God of grace. You see, three times when Peter denied him when at his crucifixion, and then after his resurrection in the end of John, John 21, Jesus came back to him and restored Peter and told him twice, follow me, follow me. Twice again, same word back in Mark 1 at the beginning. If Jesus can use Peter's failures and our failures to make us stronger and better persons, God can also use us. You know, we often say God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies those he called. God uses ordinary people, but they are mendable, they are malleable, they are willing, they are hardworking, and most importantly, he gets the glory when he uses them. The second observation about calling is that it is a personal call. Jesus not only calls the ordinary, he calls them personally. He says to them, follow me. Thirteen times in the gospel, Jesus says, follow me. That's the essence of discipleship. And I'd like us to remind ourselves this morning that the Christian life is really a life of followership. Discipleship is followership, following Jesus. We are, Jesus didn't tell us, follow my rules or follow my activities or follow my church. Being part of the church and obeying his commands are all derivative. It comes from the singular reality of following Christ, knowing Christ, loving Christ, worshipping Christ, obeying Him and serving Him. Which is why the call is as direct as it is personal. Jesus doesn't give them a job description and then they can decide whether to follow Him or not. He does not give them a career path and then they can decide what the prospects will be. They have no idea what their future holds. Which we can understand because why some people find it hard to follow Jesus. Because they're afraid where the call might lead them. And so what they do is they don't want to leave their nets. You know, they prefer to stay with their boats. You know, leaving the nets is very risky. Huh? Staying in the boat is safe. This is my life. I've known this for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And besides, our father Zebedee is built up into kind of a a decent fishing business. Now, this were quite middle-class people because you notice the text says that they have hired people. So they must be quite fairly um, well, uh, of some substance here. And so the business could put food on the table. Now, we don't want to disappoint our fathers, do we? He's looking forward to the day when he can retire and then hand over his business to us to do, you know. And so when Jesus invites them to follow him, they know what that means. It means that he might lead them to places where not their father wants them to be. It might mean that he wants them to do that is not going to be predictable. 
And that's the hard part for most of us. So think for a moment the nets in our hands, the little boats that contain our life, or the fathers and the bosses that we seek our identity and approval. Think about what we need to leave behind in order to follow him. But yet discipleship involves some kind of letting go. Because you will never go anywhere or do anything if you're unwilling to leave. Now please, do not think for a moment that I'm suggesting you could leave your career. No, that's not what it means. Although that can happen. Or move to a new town or even leave your family. But really it's about following Jesus wherever he will lead you. You know, traveling in a new direction perhaps. And receiving above all the new life that God has for you. It's about letting go of our little lives to receive the new life in Christ. A business executive, he's on the verge of implementing a very shrewd business plan. And the scheme involves pushing certain investment products which may or may not be suitable for some clients. But you know, competition in the market is fierce and he wants to push the products anyway. And so he begins to make promises that he knows may never be kept. He might withhold certain relevant information that may affect certain decision. But you know, it doesn't matter to him because or the company because investments are wise or not. All that matters is the commission that he will get. And he reasons to himself, you know, the plan is technically legal, MAS also approved of it, and all competitions are fair game anyway. And business, after all, is business. And so as the plans begin to be put in place, the word of God came to him that morning in his quiet time. And it came from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In the words of Jesus, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So it disturbs him a great deal and he feels conflicted. And on Monday, he returns to office. He knows there are no easy answers. But now he has no will to take advantage and to destroy. Instead, he seeks somehow to live and to follow Jesus in that new life. The call of Jesus. He calls the ordinary people. He calls each of them to follow him. And finally, he calls them to be fishers of people. He calls us to become fishers of people. Jesus does not say, follow me and I'll make you a success. He does not promise, follow me and I'll make you happy. When Jesus calls the man, he says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. ESV says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Notice the certainty of it. I will send you out. I will make you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the essence of our call is to that end, to be fishers of men and women. Now, I know many Christians today love to do Bible study. They go from one Bible study group to one conference and to one seminar. There are Christians who love fellowship in church. They go from one group to another. But the essence of the call is to be fishers of men. Ministry is not dealing with the immediate personal crisis or work problems. Although 90% of my time as a pastor is involved in that, especially in ministry to other people. 
It is also not about improving our programs. It is fundamentally about bringing people to know Jesus and to help them grow in their faith. I know God has called me to the pastoral ministry and to teaching and to you know, pastoral care and then to leadership. But you know, in my quiet moments, I want to assess my own spiritual health. And I know, as much as I know my own heart, one thing will remain. If I want to measure my spiritual temperature, as it were, what's the barometer of my spiritual health? And that yardstick is actually my witnessing life. In fact, I should say two, you know. My prayer life and my witnessing life. I say this because in the Gospel of Mark, what strikes me is that Jesus, our Lord, focuses on these two main things. His prayer. He often set a time to commune and talk to the, his family, Father in heaven. His prayer life and his preaching and witnessing of the good news through word and deeds. And if one of them or both of them are stagnant, if I no longer pray or pray very little, if I no longer bear witness for Christ in word or deed, it is almost always an indication of some kind of spiritual stagnation. If I pray too little, if I bear, fail to bear witness for Christ, it is almost always a symptom that I have become a lukewarm Christian. I, I don't really care how much Bible you know or how much activities I'm involved in. Whatever you do as a Christian, your prayer life and your witnessing life will remain the barometer of your spiritual health. And when I follow Jesus, those two things will come together. Because you want to talk to God about people. That's prayer. And then you want to talk to people about God. That's witnessing. Which is why we are planting a church. Why do we want to go to where the people are? Because we want to be witness for Christ in the new estate. And that many of you are saying yes to the church plan means I thank God as a find you. Because you want to talk to God about people and you want to talk to people about God. Now, I don't want to overstretch the metaphor, but let's just consider for a moment. What would it take to fish for people? What would it take to fish for people? It takes some effort, right? I'm not suggesting also that in a moment, I'm not suggesting that we are called to be evangelists or to be preachers. That's not what it is. What we are called to be is witnesses. So it takes effort. So Simon and Andrew, James and John, they all know about fishing, the effort and the sacrifices it takes. And they know a fisher, don't jump into your boat, you know. You have to go and find them. You've got to go where the fishes are. Fishing takes effort, takes intentionality. I recall an occasion, the only occasion actually, I went fishing with my father-in-law. One day he said to me, he said, let's go fishing. Actually, I wasn't very keen, you know, I, but I didn't want to disappoint him. I was hoping that the next day it would rain so that I don't have to go. Um, you know, my father-in-law, as you know, don't speak English, so he said, let's go. <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> so we got up early in the morning with our fishing gear and the sun was shining very brightly. And so we made our way to the coast. And the boat then took us out into the open sea. As the boat came to a halt, walking back and forth in the waves, he said, he says, this is where we will fish. But first, you have to put the line in the water. So not at the surface, huh? you can let it go down, as deep down as you can. 
And the line has several hooks on it, four or five as I recall. And so I let the lines down. Now, I, then after that, we caught four or five fish. Now, I wish I could say that we, it was bluefin tuna, but no, it was mackerel, sabah, about this big. I was really thrilled because we caught 20 of that. Yeah, 20, you know. That evening's dinner was grilled sabah, sashimi sabah, teriyaki sabah. I was just so sick of mackerel after that. But you know, we are not going to catch any fish if we didn't leave the shores and go out to the open sea. We're not going to catch anything if we didn't let the nets, uh, let the line down into the deep. Brothers in Christ, there's a time to stay at the shore and prepare the nets. There's a time to leave the shore and out to the sea and cast the nets. There's a time to Bible do Bible study. There's a time to apply what we've learned. There's a time to receive and learn, but there's a time to give and share. There's a time to worship in this place, and there's a time to leave this place into the world. Where do I begin? Bring to mind someone that you can pray for, you know, to reach out to. At the church level, we have twice a year that you have opportunity to bring them to church and invite a friend. You can invite your relatives to our Parents' Day dinner in July. The gospel is shared there. And uh, you can also bring inv invite a friend to Alpha course. Every year we have several friends coming to know Christ through Alpha. So that's at the church level. But at a personal level, your life bears witness to Christ, whether you realize or not. God's not calling you to a full-time evangelist or preacher. But you realize that even you as a Christian out in a world, in a home, in a marketplace, people are watching you. They're going to see the way you work. They're going to hear the what you talk, you know, in your home, in your office, and how you hold up in a crisis, and how you, you know, bear and respond under pressure. See, your life is a witnessing life. To the doctor or a nurse, Jesus will say, follow me. Follow me, bear my witness, and you'll bring comfort and heal the brokenness of this world. To the business executives, follow me. Bear witness and you will promote useful products and better services and honest dealings. To the teachers, follow me, bear my witness as you open minds to God's creation and truth. To the parents, follow me, bear my witness as you bring up your children in my way. Talk to God about people. Talk to people about God. I'd like to close this time for all of us to have a moment of reflection. So I invite all of you to just bow your heads, just for a moment with me, time to reflect, time to respond, time to, as we heard, now we want to respond to our Lord Jesus. So I want us to just bow our heads, just close your eyes, and as I lead this time for all of us. Some of you here today, you are followers of Jesus, you have left the past, you have left the old way of living, the life of sin, and now you're living a new life in Christ. You are seeking His will, you are doing His will, you know you're at the center of His will, you're talking to God about people, you are talking to people about God. Praise God. Praise God and ask God to give you the strength to continue to do that for His glory. Then the others who have not been actively following Jesus for some time now. Some time ago you stopped. I don't mean you stopped coming to church. You may or you may not have. But the truth is, 
you have stopped really following Jesus. You have stopped walking with him daily, getting his direction for your life, doing what he would do in the world. But today, if you hear his call again, he's saying to you, follow me. Will you respond to him? Tell him, yes, Lord, I will not resist. I will come behind you. I will follow you. Would you do that? And then maybe there's a particular area that you have not yielded to him. And he's saying to you in that area, follow me. Maybe you are his follower, but you have not confessed him in baptism. You have resisted this, this baptism thing, you know. What is it holding you back? You, you're not becoming like him in some area of your life. Perhaps you're contented with some sin. And he's telling you, if you're really following me, you're going to have to leave that behind. Ask Jesus to give you that grace and the strength to do that. Ask him for his grace and strength. Or perhaps in some ways you have been of good follower, but you've gotten sidetracked. You're not ministering to people like Jesus did. You aren't witnessing. You aren't fishing for people. You aren't making disciples. Again, he says to you, follow me. Follow me. Would you ask grace, his grace to minister to people? And then finally, perhaps there are some of you here who have never followed Jesus for the very first time. But you can follow him today if you're willing to turn from your old life, embrace his new life, and follow him as your Lord and Savior. Ask him to help you to do that today. Our Lord Jesus, we are grateful to you for the new life that we have in you. You have called us to salvation. You have called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. So we are so thankful for the joy of salvation that we have. You have called us to live the life of the sin. And now the sin that has brought so much pain and so much hopelessness and, lead, and now leading us to know you, where there is joy and there is freedom. You have also called us to take up the cross, to turn from our selfish ways and to follow after you into the world. Lord, we know the road can be difficult to see, heading in a direction we may never have chosen for ourselves. And we confess that we have been quick to question and hesitant to follow. We ask, Lord, that you will forgive us. Help us to see with eyes of faith rather than from our own human point of view. Teach us, Lord, to follow. Help us to follow. And knowing that you are always with us and leading us the way. Make us fishers of men, we pray in your name. Amen.